This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear An Actor Prepares by Donald Antrim, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1999. Possibly, I should say probably, it was risky of me to attempt simulated sex with undergraduates. What do you think, gang? Is this something you feel you can comfortably do in front of an audience? The story was chosen by Andrew O'Hagan, who's the author of six novels, including The Illuminations and Mayflies, which was published in 2020 and won the Los Angeles Times' Christopher Isherwood Prize. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Deborah. Welcome. Great to be here. Um, So you considered several stories by Donald Antrim um, before settling on an actor prepares, but you were quite sure that you wanted to read one of his stories. and, And why is that? I think Donald Antrim is one of the most interesting American writers currently working. I've been following him from story to story and from novel to novel and also enjoyed his non-fiction work. And he just seems to me to have a kind of Chekhovian precision about him and also um, an ear for the unusual, um, a very spirited writer in some ways, although orderly. As a Mm -hmm. short story writer, I mean, everything is in its place. There's also room for anarchy. There's room for strangeness and eccentricity. Um, Sometimes I think people come to the short story form with a kind of ecclesiastical attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's just sometimes a surrounding fog of seriousness. Um, But I love stories which also kind of break the parameters and introduce a tone which we don't quite know how to understand until the very last words of the story. And the one I've chosen by Donald Antrim has that quality, I think. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's one of his earliest stories. It was his first um, actual short story in the magazine. There were yes. excerpts from his novels before that, I think. And the later stories that we published here became more serious in some ways. Yes. Um, this is probably the most sort of antic of Yes. I mean, story. in some ways it's atypical. I mean, it's not, if somebody said, what is a Donald Antrim story in The New Yorker like? You wouldn't grab this one first necessarily. This stood out on its own. I don't think there's anything else quite like this, not only in, in his works, but in, in the magazine. There's always been room, I think, in The New Yorker, if you go all the way back to the beginning, for theatricalism and Mm -hmm. anarchy and Mm -hmm. a certain amount of eccentricity and delirium. Um, Possibly not enough. (laughs) (laughs) And I would hold um, An Actor Prepares up to be a great example of how it can be done, where it's really pulling on our uh, our suspension of disbelief. Um, There's something even, can I suggest, Shakespeareanly complex about the relationship between the, the real and the imagined in this story. I mean, right at the centre of the story is a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which has been put on by our lead speaker and our main character, Reginald. And he, right from the minute we meet him, is concerned with acting, directing, performance, but also, if you like, the theatricals of one's inner life, mm-hmm. something that Donald Antrim is second to none in animating, <laughs> obviously. I, I think animating is the right word because even when the stories sort of spiral out of control, they're all about moving a character from one place to another, about putting someone through a lot of activity and motion. There's stagecraft to them. 
as we'll hear, there's a wonderful line of Antrim's in here about the impeccable orchestrations of pratfall farce. And it's the impeccable orchestrations in his own story which fascinate me too. Anybody interested in, as it were, the structure of the short story, of how it can render by its various effects, very subtly placed, very brilliantly managed. Orchestrations is the right word here. Mm -hmm. And this story, I think, gives us a sense of high comedy seeping out of situation in an almost farcical way. We can hardly believe what's happening. I think we should dive in and hear the story, and we'll talk some more afterwards. And now here's Andrew O'Hagan, Reading an Actor Prepares by Donald Antrim. An Actor Prepares Lee Strasberg a founder of the group theatre and great teacher of the American method, famously advised his students never to use, for generating tears, etc., in a dramatic scene, personal historical material less than seven years in the personal historical past. Otherwise, the emotion memory, the death of a loved one or some like event in the actor's life that can, when evoked through recall and substitution, hurl open the floodgates, as they say, right on cue, night after night, even during a long run. This material, being too close, as it were, might overwhelm the artist and compromise the total control required to act the part, or, more to the point, act it well. Might, in fact, destabilise the play. If, for instance, at the moment in a scene when it becomes necessary for Nina or Gertrude or Macduff to wipe away tears and get on with life... If, at that moment, it becomes impossible for a wailing performer to pull it together, if, in other words, the performer remains trapped in affect long after the character has moved on to dinner or the battlefield, when this happens, then you can be sure that delirious theatrical mayhem will follow. What is the point of all this? Strasbourg was wrong. Seven years are not enough, a fact I discovered recently during a twilight performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream, presented on the College Green to commemorate the founding 150 years ago by the Reverend William Trevor Barry, my great-great-grandfather on my father's side, of the small liberal arts institution that bears our family's name and our seal. I am Reginald Barry, Dean of Student Life and William T. Barry Professor of Speech and Drama at Barry College. So naturally, it fell to me to direct our commemorative barefoot production of Shakespeare's great festive comedy. While I was at it, I decided to serve up some ham myself as Lysander. What would a skinny, balding, unmarried, childless 46-year-old Lysander, a PhD with hair on his back, mean? within the context of an otherwise college-age show? I'm not sure I can answer that question. Normally, Lysander would be essayed by some good-looking lacrosse goalie, waiting his turn to date-rape the beautiful, waifish Mary Victoria Frost, or Hermia, only a sophomore herself, and already the finest actress we've had in my time at Barry, a sure candidate for Yale, or Juilliard if she can ease off the drugs. I might stand in as Aegeus, or Theseus, or maybe Oberon, King of the Fairies, if I felt up to it. But high-concept casting is a director's prerogative. Two seasons ago, we mounted an all-male, all-nude Taming of the Shrew. 
People said it increased their appreciation for the radical potentials in Elizabethan drama. And so, the play. Four adolescents turned out by law and their parents into a green world governed by spooks, all playing, children and their phantoms, at love and nighttime evil. The adolescents were me, Mary Victoria Frost, Sheila Tannenbaum as Helena, and Billy Valentine as Demetrius. Sheila, a junior, plays character parts when she's not playing basketball for the Lady Bears, and I knew she'd make an acceptable, if not entirely agreeable, Helena, with her big hands and lurching walk and brown eyes too far apart on an otherwise bent-looking, asymmetrical face. But Valentine represented a casting risk. Valentine is a certain kind of blonde-haired, upper-middle-class boy, the type is familiar at any private school in the land, I would imagine, a sarcastic, wiry little underachiever who, on the basis of no evidence, is rumoured among his peers to be a genius. Don't come to rehearsal stoned, Billy. I warned this kid before first read-through. Stoned, Mr Barry, he laughed. The previous Friday, a bunch of us had found ourselves lying around on sofas in my office in Lower Hancock, getting wasted in some of Billy's very strong homegrown. We're here to work, I told him now, and he said, Don't you think I should be playing Puck? You want to direct this show, Valentine? I asked him. No? Then let me worry about casting. Hey, Mr Barry, everything's cool. It's just that Martin can't read his script. I mean... He can't see. Billy Valentine had a point. Putting Martin Epps in as Puck was like putting, well, I don't know what into what. How can you defend a totally blind Robin Goodfellow tapping his way around the stage with a telescoping cane? Except, in theory. Dramaturgically speaking, the theory was sound enough, I thought. And so I opened up rehearsals by reciting it in somewhat oblique form, to my cast. There they were, the drama mafia, down in the windowless Hancock Hall basement, 25 or 30 hungover lovers, royals, spirit wraiths, merry men, stagehands, set techies and walk-ons, all dressed in late spring cut-offs and Oxford cloth shirts and sheer halter tops, almost every one of this lot, except Martin Epps, the blind boy, inhaling drags off cigarettes, it was a bored, blasé-looking crowd. Genuine vision, expressed artistically by Shakespeare in the character Puck, is more than the ability to open your eyes, take a look around and see what's wrong with your life, I announced to these oversexed dope addicts. No one spoke or even looked up, and I had that terrible feeling I get at the kick-off to any rehearsal period when I realise how much disappointment lies ahead. I said, well, anyway, Theseus, it's your line to start the play. Still no one spoke. Danielle, do you have the cast list? I asked my sophomore stage manager. Hang on, Mr Barry, it's here somewhere. Call me Reg, I told her. During the play, we're all equals. She stared at me like she wasn't quite sure. Unorthodox etiquette is often perplexing to the young, she held up the cast list and waved it, apparently some kind of theatrical gesture, in the air over her head. Greg Lippincott, your Theseus. 
Or is that how Theseus is pronounced? Greg asked. It was hard to believe he was one of the Philadelphia Lippincotts. He took a puff from his cigarette. Snickering could be heard. It took four hours to complete the read-through. Danielle delivered Martin Epps's lines to him, and Martin repeated each back, painstakingly, one word, then the next, like a spy being briefed on a plan. I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes, recited Danielle. I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes, said Martin. I made a note to ask him to pick up the pace and not tap cadences on the floor with his cane. I made another note to Jim Ferguson, warning him to avoid inserting like into Oberon's speeches to Titania. I worried about telling the fairies and goblins that their costumes would consist of G-strings and pasties. I can always give thanks in these delicate situations for our costumer, my girlfriend, Carol. Carol came in later in the week, during our first walkthrough rehearsal, and made the case for her skimpy outfits. I think we will be able to see from their attire that these fairies are playful and very dangerous, earthy yet devilish, with a heightened insistence on gender that not only subverts our own male-dominated culture, but underscores the young lovers' cruelty towards one another in the Athenian Grove, she announced while staring straight at me. Was it necessary for Carol to see everything as a reflection of the sexual antagonisms in our on-again, off-again relationship? She held the fairy sketches, cobweb, peas blossom, moth and mustard seed, up in glaring overhead light. A girl wearing shorts and a t-shirt objected, No way! I'm not going out there naked! This is the theatre, honey. The character is naked, not you. Good point, Carol. I interjected unwisely. Carol gave me one of her furious looks, reminding me that she was approaching a breaking point in our love affair. What can be said about this? After five years, it's a regular enough occurrence. The truth is that we have never been very happy together. We pick at each other and have squalid fights. I'll spare the details, except to say that whenever I think about our fighting or about Carol's drinking, I feel sad for both of us. And this makes me want to phone her up and find out if she's doing all right. And this behaviour, as will easily be understood by anyone who has lasted even a short while in a hostile erotic relationship, is almost invariably a prelude to knockout sex. What will I be wearing? called a boy from the back of the basement. The boy was Sam English, a theatre regular, bearded and deep-voiced. He was my bottom. Caro said to him and to the entire cast, Costumes are designed to suggest historical period and class while also referring to modern dress. Bottom and his fellow mechanicals will wear weightlifting belts over wool tunics with the characters' names ironed on. It had been my idea to depict Shakespeare's vulgar tradesmen as a team of Elizabethan powerlifters. I imagined them carrying six packs of beer hanging from those clear plastic rings. Let me see Bottom and his men at the front of the room, pronto, I called out, to begin that day's walkthrough of the play within the play, Act Five's irresistible, tedious brief scene of young Pyramus and his love, Thisbe. Here came Quince, the carpenter, Bottom, the weaver, Flute, the bellows mender, Snout, the tinker, Snug, the joiner, and Starveling, the tailor, 
in reality, a cluster of political science and religious studies majors. These six huddled around me, and I said, You guys are fuck-ups, and you're ugly. You're a bunch of functionally illiterate dipsomaniacs, and I'd be amazed if any of you had ever been laid. Your own mothers ought to be ashamed of you. The boys looked confused, and I knew I had them where I wanted them. It is useful, when directing, to blur the boundaries between actor and role, to inaugurate, with a few stringent words if necessary, a certain emotional instability. In this instance, I was exploiting my students' routine insecurities in order to lead them to identify with Shakespeare motley artisans. I then gave these merry men my cautionary talk about the hardships of a life in the theatre. At some point, I became aware of Danielle, I could see her over Sam English's big head. She was waving and pointing at her watch, making those gestures and absurd faces people make when they need your attention, yet are afraid of you. So I concluded, Boys, the point is this. People think the theatre is romantic and magical, and sometimes it is, but most of the time it's just a pile of crap that nobody cares about. Time for animal improvisations, Danielle shouted. A Midsummer Night's Dream, historians tell us, was probably first presented at a royal wedding held in the summer at a house outside London. Presumably, the guests, like wedding guests throughout history, became intoxicated with alcohol and the aphrodisiac spirit of the occasion. Young couples, wandering in and out of doors, slipping away to flirt or break up or make love, had dramatic counterparts in the unhappy children lost in love in Shakespeare's imaginary grove. How many real lovers woke after the ceremony, hungover and sick, to discover themselves entwined on the lawn with mates met only during the festivities the night before? I wanted to create a world where love is mercurial, unbridled, bestial. In our production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, the unmarried lovers would fall asleep after chasing each other through the forest. Then, doused with nectar from Puck's flower, they would roll over, rub their eyes, and fuck the wrong person. Let's all get down on our hands and knees, I told the cast. Down we went. Right away, I noticed that Mary Victoria Frost and several fairies appeared to be acting like house cats. These girls arched their backs, projected feline butts into the air and hissed. Sheila Tannenbaum, who, in Act 2, Scene 1, repeats the famous line, Use me but as your spaniel, spurn me, strike me, was doing a nice job as a submissive pup, rolling over and sticking out her tongue to lick Billy Valentine, slithering past on his belly. Lion roared and bottom brayed like an ass, and Sarah Goldwasser, our Titania, responded by rubbing herself against Sam. It was clear these two had a flirtation in the works. That's something I like to see. Sex makes any show better. Oink, oink, I said to Mary Victoria Frost. I love the theatre, I really do. And I adored my cast. They adored one another too. These boys and girls were becoming, as the days became weeks and the play took its shape, uninhibitedly smitten with one another. It was mid-May and summer's first warmth was in the air. The basement felt stuffy and hot, thanks to the overheating furnace in the corner. We're not out of the woods yet, I announced at the beginning of our third week. Those of you who haven't got off book, you're holding the rest of us up.
Demetrius, time your entrances so you don't keep Helena waiting downstage. Titania, less kissing and more teasing when you're giving up to bottom in Act 4. Make him work for it. Reg, peeped a voice from the crowd. It was Sarah Goldwasser, the prima donna. Yes, Sarah? When will we get out of this gross basement and start rehearsing on the green? Any day now. Roger and Emile are building the platforms in the trees and they have to dig the hole for Puck. Once Puck's crater is finished, we'll move the show outdoors. Crater? This from Martin Epps. That's right. In our Midsummer Night's Dream, the demons won't merely buzz around like woodland pixies. They'll come right up from the earth to grab us and pull us down to hell. At any rate, Martin, I don't think your hole will be much of a problem after one or two on-site rehearsals. You'll see, assured the blind boy. It was one of those moments when a person, myself in this instance, says something wholly untoward and then, becoming aware of the faux pas and its implications, rushes blindly forward. There is no other way to describe this adequately except as a kind of verbal blindness, exclaiming additional horrors. What I meant is, the rest of us will uh, watch you crawling, covered with dirt and sticks. You can picture it. I don't mean literally. That's okay, Mr. Barry, said Martin Epps. Call me Reg, I reminded him by way of apology. Then, addressing the room at large, attempting to regain authority, All right, let me have all the young lovers over in the corner. Lovers, don't touch the boiler. Possibly, I should say, probably, it was risky of me to attempt simulated sex with undergraduates. What do you think, gang? Is this something you feel you can comfortably do in front of an audience? Together we sat, Mary Victoria Frost, Sheila Tannenbaum, Billy Valentine and I, in a cosy circle on the floor. Billy, I noticed, had his eye on Mary. He leaned back beside her, and you could tell he was angling to spy an opening in her blouse and glimpse a breast. Mary spoke. How dark will it be? Fairly. By Act 3, the sun will be setting. With any luck... It'll be a humid night and the fireflies will be out. It's going to be beautiful, exclaimed Sheila. I concurred. That's right, Sheila. When you make love, you're doing God's work on earth. After that, we sat for a time. The atmosphere became pleasantly uncomfortable. This sensation of a pervasive shared emotional discomfort may have been helped along by the presence nearby of the foul-smelling oil furnace hissing and burning, making the air in our little corner feel sickeningly, suffocatingly warm. Finally, Billy broke the tension with a homophobic joke. Reg, will I have to make out with you? In a manner of speaking, Billy... Lysander, Hermia, Demetrius and Helena will trade back and forth in a kind of blind, revolving embrace. Erotic possibility, signifying not immorality but immortality, is the real pleasure for unmarried lovers. So we're going to get it on. <laughs> like in my dormitory, laughed Valentine. Later, we all stretched out on the floor and began mapping positions. It was clear that the kids were... How shall I put this? Experienced in some ways and inexperienced in others? Sheila Tannenbaum chuckled when touched. There was little that was pretty about this rangy girl, yet she was coy, 
and therefore sexy. Billy Valentine was not sexy. It annoyed me to watch him grope Mary Victoria Frost. He had no moves, and she, as far as I could tell, didn't care. I signalled everyone to switch partners, and Mary wrapped her legs around me. I read this as permission to cradle her in my lap. She weighed practically nothing. Was she one of those girls who exist on breakfast cereal and amphetamines? I stuck my face in her hair and breathed in her smells of bath oil and nicotine. Oh, my heart. I laid my head on Mary's shoulder and watched Billy Valentine straddle Sheila. He appeared to be mauling the girl's throat. What was he doing? Administering a sleeper hold? Until Sheila made an athletic move with her legs, scissoring Billy and bringing him hard to the floor. Thump. Quickly, I leaned over and tugged Sheila toward me. In this way, getting two girls and scoring a sexual victory over a boy young enough to be my son. Billy Valentine sat to the side with his legs crossed and his head down. I had the feeling, watching him, that I was seeing him in an unguarded moment and in a posture and attitude that expressed an essential state of his being. I was witnessing, it occurred to me, something like pure sadness, and I would have bet money that Billy was the child of divorced, probably alcoholic parents. I cuddled the girls, and in a moment of, I suppose, empathy, told him, You know, Billy, my mother and father got drunk and argued all the time. The truth is, they were terrible to each other. I thought I'd never get over all that, and I guess maybe I never have. For an instant, Billy looked as if he might laugh, but he didn't laugh. He gazed at me with these big, round eyes that seemed to grow larger and more rounded, and his whole countenance changed, which is to say that, in some way that had more to do with a feeling than an actual look, his expression softened, and he lowered his head. Places for Act 2, Scene 1, I called out to Danielle and the cast. We're going to run the play from Puck's line to the ferry. Thou speakst aright, I am that merry wanderer of the night. Puck, you're downstage left, crawling out of your hole. Thou speakst aright, I am that merry wanderer, of the night, intoned my sightless puck. Wait a minute, Martin. Do the line again, this time as if you hate life. Say this line as if you're alone in the world and you despise yourself. Thou speakest aright, I am that. There he paused for an especially long time, as if thinking about a hard problem. Merry wanderer of the night. Listen to me. Puck is not some frolicking clown. He's Hobgoblin, Beelzebub, Lucifer, Satan, the enemy of love. Puck is a wretched, willfully destructive creature. Let's do a quick exercise. Repeat after me. I am a wretched, willfully destructive creature. I am a wretched, willfully destructive creature. Everything I do creates pain. Everything I... Do creates pain. No one loves me. No one loves me. I'm fucked up. I'm fucked. He was sniffling. His voice cracked. Were there tears? I could not see the young actor's eyes because they were hidden behind dark lenses. I leaned close to my puck in order to growl in his ear. I wear the number of the beast. Huh? He whimpered. I smacked the blind kid on the shoulder. Let's run this play, Martin. I mean Puck. 
when we get to the section where you chase the young lovers through the forest, go ahead and swat our legs with your cane. And to the cast, the royals and rude mechanicals, the devils and imps and lost children, I proclaimed, this show needs to move people. It's a comedy. Or is it? Students of A Midsummer Night's Dream will undoubtedly be familiar with the trend in recent years to emphasise horror in the drama. Fairies played as ghouls, Oberyn as a molester, Bottom's transformation depicted as a grotesque, literally asinine mutilation. There is a reactionary aspect to this movement away from traditional fun and games, construing the dream as a hellish sexual nightmare rather than as an innocuous garden party is a way of making the play interestingly modern in the post-World War, post-Holocaust, thermonuclear and psychoanalytic era. Make it ugly, I instructed my cast in the final week before the show. It was a Sunday afternoon, our first and only, thanks to storms blowing in, outdoor run-through. The day was overcast and unseasonably chilly, with winds from the north smelling like rain. Crows perched on tree branches and the fairies' wooden platforms, three plywood decks connected by swaying footbridges, everything balanced precariously in the high, heavy oak limbs that reached out to shade Puck's deep hole, dug, centre stage, at the southernmost edge of the Barry College Green, our theatre. Up in the trees, fairies, let's go, I called. Girls took turns climbing. A few had trouble getting up. Sarah Goldwasser, the regal Titania, marched over and said, Reg, will you tell Oberon to stop grabbing my nipples in our fight scene? I think it's kind of good for the scene, Sarah. He does it too hard. My nipples don't like it that hard, she said, and huffed off towards her bar. Here comes the rain, a boy's voice beside me exclaimed. I'd appreciate it if you would concentrate on your acting and not worry about the weather, Billy. How are we supposed to do any acting when the entire stage is nothing but a hole in the ground? The boy had a point, and I had an answer. The circular patterns sketched by our movements around the pit will illustrate mankind's proximity to the abyss, and this in turn will be a dramaturgical reminder of the themes of revolution and renewal in English Morris dancing, which, you'll recall from the first week of rehearsal, Billy, is an acknowledged folk source for Shakespeare's May Day comedies. I wish I could say I was pleased with his impromptu oration. Purely technical observations concerning the larger implications of stagecraft are best left in the classroom, having out here in the field, as it were, more of a confusing than a clarifying effect. Billy looked despairing. Clearly I had been right during that sex scene rehearsal the week before in supposing him to be the child of an unhappy home. I put my hand on his shoulder and said, in as fatherly a voice as I could concoct on short notice, I know it's a mighty big hole, Billy. We're all having to be careful not to fall in and break our legs. Sometimes in the theatre, as in life, we do our best work when mainly concerned with not making fools of ourselves. That's typical for a man to say, isn't it? declared a woman's voice. I became immediately tense. The speaker was Carol, who had snuck up from behind and was standing with her arms crossed before her chest, the posture expressing her confrontational mode, surely an indication that she'd been drinking. Hello, Carol. Don't bother being polite, Reg, Carol said. It doesn't look good on you. She was weaving slightly, actually swaying in place, 
Much in the manner of an actor impersonating a drunk, I thought, here was an example of a dramatic cliché's analogue in reality. We're about to begin rehearsal, Carol. I suppose you've come to take a few last-minute costume measurements. Fuck you! Let's not have one of our scenes, Carol. Not here in front of the boy, please. Look who's talking. If it isn't the protector of youth himself, she addressed Billy. I bet you're fond of your teacher, aren't you? I guess. You guess? She seemed very unsteady on her feet. Her voice sounded hysterical and mean. It's going to rain. Have you ever fucked in the rain? Your teacher likes to fuck in the rain. Jesus, Carol. He likes to fuck in the rain and he likes it on top of his desk and in cars and on buses. By now, people had accumulated a circle of actors and actresses, a few passers-by, no faculty or fellow academic deans, I hoped. Everyone gathered to relish the spectacle of Carol crying. I was going to have a baby. This man wouldn't let me have our baby. Billy, I noticed, wore a surprisingly composed, though somewhat glassed-over expression, as if he were accustomed to violent exhibitionism in adults. He looked as though nothing could be more natural to him than a drunken woman's fury. I'm sorry, son, I said to the boy when Carol eventually ceased yelling. I had the uneasy feeling that I was in some way giving an expert rendering of Billy's real father, a man who must have been lacking if our episode in the college green could be used as an indicator, backbone. It's cool, sighed Billy. Then the rain came. The first drops were followed by wind and a grey rolling thunderclap. Tree branches swayed and fairies scampered down from their platforms. Then forked lightning struck nearby and the sky was instantly ghostly white. Cast and crew began racing off in different directions. It was one of those thoroughly drenching gales that marked the beginning of summer. There was no point trying to stay dry. I reached out and took Carol by the arm to comfort her and steady her. Rainwater soaked her hair and matted it in clumps. Let's go indoors and get you wrapped in a warm towel, I shouted over the thunder, and she tugged her arm away and staggered to the edge of Puck's hole. She gave me one of her powerful, inimitable, disgusted looks, then leaned over, braced herself with her hands on her knees, and vomited into the pit. It happened quickly and was over before Billy or I could respond in a helpful way. A couple of heaves and Carol spat out the last. She looked terrible, like a witch in the Scottish play, I thought, or one of those modern descendants of crones on heaths, the living dead who climb from graves in horror movies. She was intensely drunk, of course. To Billy, she was looking mostly at the boy, though presumably Carol was thinking of me, or maybe neither Billy nor me. She said, Look at you. You make me sick. You're like your father. He does whatever he wants with people. He's a shit. There's no love in this family. Then she reeled away across the green. Billy and I watched Carol lurch around a corner and disappeared behind Lundbeck Hall. Then we turned, flustered and embarrassed, two men sharing a burden of humiliation, and walked together in the opposite direction. Rain was in our faces and our hands were buried in our pockets. Wind and water forced our eyes downward. Our shoes squished. Puddles were everywhere. It was Billy who spoke first. I doubt if I could run like that if I'd just barfed.
This comment made me like young Valentine immensely. I told him, you should have played Puck. This was said not so much to avoid the subject of Carol, her outburst and her vomiting, as to assuage feelings of guilt and shame by making an offering of some kind, however small and meaningless. Billy replied in the right spirit, Demetrius rocks. I'm glad you feel that way, Billy. Do you have any more of that good, strong dope? I asked, dripping. No, sir. Not on me. That's too bad. For reasons I could not name, I went on, When I was younger, I figured I'd grow up and get married and have children, but now years have gone by and I'm not young. That's cool, said Billy. And he said, Anyway, you shouldn't marry someone with a drinking problem. You're right about that. Mr. Barry? Reg? Reg, do you think she knows about my father? Knows what? She wasn't talking about your father. She thought I was your father, and you were our son that we never had, and you were growing up to be like me. That's crazy. Yes, I agreed. But it was true that I'd had the same notion as Carol. See you tomorrow, Billy. Later, Reg. Rehearsal, however, was not to be. Not the next day, or the day after that, or the afternoon following. The storm worsened over the course of the first night, causing trees to fall on power lines, disabling phones, and cutting off electricity to homes and college buildings. Classes were cancelled. By morning of the second day, Tuesday, the thunder and lightning had stopped, though the sky remained grey, pouring heavy rain. The country around here is veined with creeks. These grew into deep, fast-moving rivers. The college, safe on high ground, operated minimally on generators. A party spirit prevailed. New couples would subsequently date their union to the week of the flash flood. The disaster occurred on Thursday, when natural dams in the nearby hills gave way, releasing torrents of water derived primarily from melted winter snow. The water crashed down into the valleys, washing away roads, trees, cars and about 20 people. The National Guard and the International Red Cross landed helicopters on the William T. Barry Gymnasium parking lot. Student volunteers collected cast-off clothing, canned food, blankets, etc. A short time later, it was learned that Harrison P. McKay, a chemistry professor with 40 years at the college, had been a flood casualty. The professor, not well known to me except as a red-faced personage wearing a bow tie, was found lodged in an embankment near the town of Chesterford. An emergency meeting of deans and the president convened. Sadness was expressed and a few important memories were recalled. After the meeting, President Farnham took me aside and said, Reginald, I want you to do that play if the weather clears, right after our service for Harrison. We're all going to need cheering up. It was in this way that we came to perform A Midsummer Night's Dream on a wet field before an audience of mourners wearing black. We're going to have a tough house, I said to my young company on the evening of the show. Folding chairs were set up on the mushy ground. Organ music, a gloomy Episcopalian dirge, drifted in from the church at the College Green's distant end. Harrison's memorial, underway. Skies remained partly cloudy, and a light breeze blew from the south. Together we stood, 
cast and crew in a circle around Puck's Hole. We weren't holding hands, though we should have been. There was a noticeable feeling in the group of apprehension, a communal dread and excitation only partly attributable to normal stage fright. The hole, in the wake of the week's rains, was a muddy pond. A duck, possibly blown far from home in the high winds a few days earlier, paddled on the surface. Fallen leaves looked like twisted miniature lily pads. These elements, water, duck, vegetation, combined to create a disturbingly powerful scene, a vastly reduced water vista that stood in relation to actual lakes as an artist easel studies do to fully realised complex paintings. It was, in other words, an excellent stage-set pond, not at all unlike a classical folly from an English garden, scaled down, deceptively simple, unreal enough to seem mysterious, primordial, sad. The funeral music was not helping my mood. Jim Ferguson, our sexually aggressive Oberon and a zoology major, pointed out, that's a female mallard, she's injured, look at her, she's all crooked. It was true. The duck listed in the water. Jim explained, Ducks are vicious when they're hurt. They host human influenza and other dangerous viruses. Duck? asked Martin Epps, waving his cane, straying precariously near the water's edge. I told him, Don't worry about the duck, OK? To the casting general, I said, I'll need a couple of volunteers to lower Martin into the water when the time comes. Water? said Martin, splashing with his cane, poking to find the hole's bottom. The duck paddled weakly. All around me, kids in little groups stared down at it and smoked in that self-consciously erotic way, the dramatic puffs and the stagey side-of-the-mouth exhalations blown upward into the air like steam escaping so many hot engines that seems to be an advertisement for the carefree life. I couldn't take it. Do you kids think you're going to live forever? I shouted at these innocents. Do you think life is some kind of holiday? You think that one day you'll stop being depressed? You won't ever stop being depressed, no matter how much sex you have. As if on cue, bells rang out from the chapel spire. Big wooden doors were flung open and the first few mourners emerged from the church. Places, cried Danielle. Fairies tossed away cigarette butts and royals crouched behind bushes while mechanicals popped open their first-act beers. Billy Valentine passed Mary Victoria Frost an enormous joint. Martin Epps alone remained before his watery lair. Billy, Mary, give me a hand with Martin, I said. One, two, three. Up went the blind boy. He was light for a fat kid. He entered the water and said, Ah! Stay put and don't piss off the duck, I directed him. Billy and Mary and I crawled beneath the stage left shrubs. Billy was about to stash the joint when I stopped him. Hey, don't put that away, I need a hit. Fireflies blinked on, off, on. The audience settled into seats. Sounds of weeping rose from the house. I peeked up and could see, above me, fairies' legs dangling from platforms and trees, pair after pair of young legs. Good dope, I whispered to Billy. Then Danielle gave the signal and Greg Lippenscott walked on stage and exclaimed, Now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. 
Four happy days bring in another moon. Who can listen to that kind of stuff? A moment later came the cue for the young lovers to stumble out and stand before their elders. There was not much ground to stand on, only slippery grass beside the hole where Martin was sunk in black water to his chin. The crooked duck regarded Martin with crazed eyes. Full of vexation come I with complaint against my child, my daughter Hermia, growled Aegeus, as faculty, alumni and a few undergraduates and parents wept tears for Harrison McKay. Understandably, I felt the need to get a laugh. The course of true love never did run smooth, I proclaimed morosely, and at that instant the duck began flapping its maimed wings, and Martin waved his cane wildly, and a gust of wind blew in like a sneeze from God, shaking the trees and blowing hats off heads in the audience. I looked for Carol among the mourners. Where was she? Did she truly love me enough to have a child with me? It's going pretty well, don't you think? I asked Billy when we came off stage at the middle of Act One. We listened respectfully as Helena rattled off her famous speech about being sexually unattractive, and then Bottom and his men took over, rushing out and tackling one another and flubbing their lines. But it didn't matter what they did, because these characters are probably the most indestructible comic team in all of English literature. And sure enough, when Bottom crunched line in the windpipe with his weight belt, the audience let out the first decent belly laugh of the night. Billy and I hid behind the backstage trees and waited to run out, lie down to sleep on the cold ground, get drugged by Puck, wake up with our hard-ons and begin chasing each other and or Mary Victoria Frost and or Sheila Tannenbaum through the haunted woods. Billy whispered, Can I talk to you, Reg? Call me Lysander during the show. I didn't want you to think after the other day, you know, that I don't love my father. He seemed maudlin, not at all like a happy comedian eager to chew the scenery. I didn't think that. I'm sure you love your father very much, I assured him. Saying this made me sad. Billy told me, My father is not a bad man, no matter what people say. Night was falling. The air had grown cold. Puck on his stomach crawled up the bank of his pond, then splashed back down into the water. Fairies on platforms jumped up and down noisily. Mary and Sheila, one tree over from me and Billy, adjusted costumes and one another's hair. Up Puck came again, covered in mud. His glasses had slipped from his head, and now his sightless eyes stared wildly. He could not have realised how afraid he looked. I'll put a girdle round about earth, he spluttered as suddenly the duck attacked. Martin howled and grasped at the mud and the grass, reaching for a handhold on dry land. It was too late. The duck blasted off the pond and came down hard in a spray of foam on Martin's pudgy, naked back. Webbed feet slapped the boy's white skin and the duck gave the coup de grace with a thrust of her bill into Martin's neck. Thanks for talking, Lysander, Billy exclaimed. He bolted from behind our oak tree. Sheila Tannenbaum leapt out of hiding and ran after him. I love thee not, therefore pursue me not, the boy yelled at the girl. What is more exciting than kinetic technical theatre, the impeccable orchestrations of pratfall farce? I say this in consideration of the fact that audience members were leaving their seats and sneaking close, the better to gawk at Puck in his hole. 
As is always the case during productions of The Bard, a few carried paperback copies of the script. Sticklers. I watched them thumb pages back and forth, no doubt searching for references to a vengeful mallard. I have no objection to the public encroaching on the players. During Shakespeare's time, spectators sat on the stage and became, to a limited degree, implicated in the theatre experience. But in this instance, a participatory audience was a safety hazard. Billy, Mary, Sheila and I had to dodge and weave throughout the better part of Acts 2 and 3. Darting barefoot and more or less naked around people wearing formal clothes had, as an activity, a distinctly anarchic, rebellious aspect. Rebellious in the sense that it created, for me at least, the kind of sweaty excitement that comes with dangerous play. I felt free and young. I should say that I felt myself backsliding to a younger state of mind. It's hard to say what this feeling consisted in. Panic and hope, disappointment, shame. I was wearing torn Barry Bear's gym shorts and feeling like a teenager and running fast and my feet sank into the earth and mud splashed my legs. What is more awful and disorienting than adolescence? How had I become so lost and alone? What had persuaded me that I could play a young man's part? Was Billy pursuing me? Was I pursuing Billy? The bereaved came forward into the fray with heads bowed, and I stumbled through a puddle and narrowly missed crashing into President Farnham. Reginald, this is criminal, criminal, the man shouted after me. Then, up and down, up and down, I will lead them up and down. I am feared in field and town. Goblin, lead them up and down. Martin Epps sang out magnificently, beautifully, before, at long last, he slid through ooze and disappeared, cane and all, beneath the water. Bubbles, then silence. Women and men, wearing black, lined the banks of the wine-black lake. They appeared, I thought, to be enjoying the show. It must be said that Shakespeare's genius lies partly in his play's ready adaptability to the kinds of high-handed, decadent concepts guaranteed to astonish playgoers and offend the critics. Theatre artists often speak of their disregard for the audience, and it's a badge of integrity among some in this business to ignore the ostensible needs and desires of that inexpert class, the ticket holders. But I think this is a rotten attitude. I'm in favour of putting on a show people will remember and talk about. Who cared if it was too dark out to really see anything? Who noticed that Mary Victoria Frost was whacked on pot and dropping her best lines? What did it matter if mustard seed and moth had stripped off their G-strings in order to 69 atop the treehouse stage set? Puck had sunk and the important middle acts were nearing conclusion, and this meant it was time for me to cuddle in the grass with Sheila Tannenbaum. There she was. She looked darling in her black and orange cheerleader's outfit and her mesh tights. She was my Helena, and she came towards me, smiling her awkward smile, and we settled in the wet ground and held each other in the night. It was time for sleep. Sheila, the Lady Bear's basketball star, snuggled warmly in my arms. She made a surprisingly good fit. She rested her head in my shoulder and we kissed lightly and I looked up at trees and saw naked children. How nice to lie on the grass.
other players, the demons and mere mortals, coupled nearby. It was a world of youthfulness and love. It was our summer at last. Fairies in the old oaks cradled Bottom and their mistress, and you could hear Sam English braying in ecstasy. Beneath a tree, sprawled face down on the ground, lay Mary Victoria Frost, my poor Hermia. She looked so pale, so stuporous. There would be plenty of time later in Act 4 or 5 or whatever act this was to wake up, dump Helena and marry for a fitting consummation, the right girl. It was the deep of night, late even for the fireflies. A few appeared here and there. Soon they would be gone. In the meantime, the Lord of Athens lit a cigarette and waited in the wings. That was Andrew O'Hagan reading An Actor Prepares by Donald Antrim. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1999 and was included in Antrim's collection, The Emerald Light in the Air, which was published by Farrar, Strauss & Giroux in 2014. So, Andrew, when I asked Donald about what he remembered about writing the story, he said, or he wrote to me, My project was to write something funny and extreme and a little dangerous, if that makes sense. The protagonist is basically a criminal. Looking back, I can see that it's a pretty wild, sometimes transgressive piece of work, and I like that about it. So do you see this as transgressive and dangerous? Oh, totally. I mean, (laughs) uh, it would be difficult to publish this short story now. I was thinking that, too. I mean, mean, you're the person to ask. I mean, from an editorial point of view, it's difficult to see it going straight into Uh, print in a magazine without some sort of framing device because it is as Donald Antrim himself said is dangerous you know Mm -hmm. and it has a way of not getting in a panic or a state of paranoia about certain desires that may exist criminal desires actually that can exist this guy is a professor yeah he's canoodling to say the very least on the lawn (laughs) with his students he's smoking pot with them he's abusing his position and yet That doesn't stop the story from being comic. It doesn't stop the story from being a kind of festival of chosenness in terms of its language, in terms of its way of uh, animating this absurdity, which is this professor directing a show whilst also working out or indeed acting out. Literally, never was the phrase acting out more useful (laughs) than in this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Acting out his own private pain and despair both with this girlfriend of his, Carol, that we know is comes in drunk and accuses him of not having the baby with her that she very much wanted. There's a whole lot of privacy being exposed in the production that he's trying to mount. Reg is kind of the classically unreliable narrator, right? And we see yeah. everything through his eyes and through his thoughts and speech, which are both kind of a parade of self-justification. Yeah. And, and excuses, and... Um, He's almost Nabokovian in that way, you yeah, know? There's yeah, a, There's an absolute self-justifying male, you know, will say anything, is totally defensive, and nevertheless not a type. There's something so specific about his pain and his way of viewing the world, and I think that that is the compliment that great writing pays to human character, that he's not some rent-a-guy... Yeah. You know, that's in a sense what makes it palatable, even although some of this is difficult and dangerous. It's, it's human stuff, extreme 
human stuff. But there's something gentle at the center of it, and that is Donald Antrim's intelligence, I think, to render this guy not just some sort of plasterboard male abuser. He's a comic creation yeah. as well as everything else. And, and that seems crucial to me. It's the fact that this is fiction, that this can only be fiction, that we're constantly reminded that Absolutely. it's fiction that makes it safe. Yeah, it's a fiction um, about fiction exactly. in that sense. You know, we're inside this play and inside the kind of massacring of any decency in this production of Midsummer Night's Dream at this liberal college. And, you know, I love uh, writers who don't allow themselves to forget that a writer can still entertain. This is a very entertaining story. Mm-hmm. And it looks to play with entertainment. It's about entertainment, you know. And there's this blind boy in the pond. And of course, nobody's laughing at his blindness, but we are nonetheless outraged and uh, apprehended, if you like, by this notion that the boy's safety is a matter of very uh, great disregard (laughs) to everybody. Um, Stories can do that. They can go to these almost unimaginable places. Yeah, yeah. We're not ever laughing at Martin Epps, but we're we're laughing at the people around him trying to grapple with his blindness. Of course, it's not his blindness that's funny. It's the, uh, it's the discomfort and it inspires in others. That's absolutely right. I'm moved to say, Deborah, that I would like us not to forget there is a brilliant tradition in America of slapstick comedy, of people being hit over the head by things. Laurel and Hardy are still funny. Yeah. Now, is it entirely fair to all the characters? Of course not. No. You know, is it entirely um, believable, you know, that these things can occur and people don't get hurt, etc. I think the, the story in our time, which is one of the reasons I chose it, it brings up a lot of very ripe material for readers. What is sayable, what's imaginable, and how can we be entertained whilst not forgetting the deeper concerns but not being overwhelmed by them? Yeah, so, you know, we have this comedy, we have these pratfalls, um, we have the absurdity mounting and mounting and mounting, and at the same time we have that, um, we have the underlying Grief, yeah. which is two characters at least, um, have had alcoholic fathers mm-hmm. <laughs> or abusive fathers in some way. Yeah, Reginald has a obviously dysfunctional affair going on with someone who's also an alcoholic. Yeah, and there is a moment of understanding between him and Billy. There is over whatever you know they've suffered in their family lives, and. How do you reconcile that? How do you, in the way that Andrum does, stick that seemingly real grief, it feels real, in the middle of a slapstick comedy? I think that's the, that's the orchestration, is that Antrim finds a way to register a deeper impact. You know, there are many stories about boys and girls with alcoholic parents. You know, there's a whole tradition of them. But somehow this goes deeper because of the comedy. It's a great lesson in register, yeah. almost, that if you can orchestrate in a particular way, the connection between uh, Billy Valentine and our man, Reginald Barry, and that's what I mean by the overused comparison with Chekhov, it's eventually about human connection. These fictional rivals in this play end up actually standing in for something that is missing in their respective lives. Mm-hmm. The missing father or the missing decency of a father that is not there for Billy is slightly, even for a moment, provided yeah. by our wayward professor. And the wayward professor asks himself, did Carol really want to have a child with me? He's asking himself questions they all are 
all the time. This isn't slapstick in the sort of, you know, uh, the leanest and most, you know, empty sense that, that slapstick can just be sort of, you know, you know, whacking somebody in the face with a wet fish. You know, <laughs> something's going on here. Yeah. And that's what takes the story to a whole other place. There's human feelings being complicated here. And, and by the end, we really feel as if we've been somewhere with them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the end, because we end in Act 3. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of the play, the field is, is flooded with, you, you know, I've got this juxtaposition of a Steve Martin movie and a, and a Bergman movie, <laughs> yep. you know, these black-clad mourners. Uh, surrounding the the wine dark pond, <laughs> looking, <laughs> yes. looking for a possibly drowned blind child. Um, why do we end there? Why do we pull out at that moment? I mean, it's actually intriguing. I mean, the idea that this could go on for another two acts, <laughs> this mayhem. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of technical engineering that it stops where it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many stories in the New Yorker over the years, often what eventually makes them is the right decision about where to stop. And I don't know, it would be interesting to see, looking back, how many of those stories were assisted by the editorial process to end perhaps earlier than the writer originally conceived. I mean, maybe that's a discussion for another day, but but certainly uh, Donald Andrew makes the right decision here. The story as published is in the right place because we just can't believe that this will go on, and yet it will go on. There's an almost Beckettian feeling in the air at the end of this story. You know, the famous business at the end of Waiting for Godot, um, I can't go on, I'll go on. You know, and there is, to me, fresh comedy ahead, off page. One of the things that makes the story resonant, it will go on living in our heads because we're wondering how is this all going to be, not just resolved, but lived with. It would just actually probably be boring to try and clean up this mess (laughs) on the page. He can let us imagine so many possible ways of getting to the next day. It reminds me of those wonderful Keystone Cop type um, black and white films right at the beginning or early days in American cinema where they'd have food fights and it would Mm -hmm. just be a disaster in the dining hall. There was never a scene later where somebody came with a mop. No. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I think, the... The, the fictional version of that is you don't want to see the guy with the mop. You want to, in a sense, let the anarchy be a perpetual force in the life of this story in your mind. And not just the mess being left a mess, but also the connections being left to either develop or fail. You know, will Carol and our professor really solve this problem at the centre of their lives? Will these children be messed up by this experience of being at this college with such professors. Who knows? There's no mop. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting when you play it against A Midsummer Night's Dream, which, of course, does wrap everything up very yeah. neatly in the final act, and we never get to that final act. Yes. I mean, if, we, if we're allowed in our sort of leisurely way to criticize Shakespeare a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> I would possibly suggest that he had a tendency to wrap things up too much. Yeah. Um, I always felt that yeah. King Lear would be slightly better if everybody wasn't so sussed or dead yeah. in the end. <laughs> Um, And I think it's one of the beauties of uh, the contemporary short story is that it can, if you like, retain the flux. Mm -hmm. So we leave in medias res. We we leave Mm -hmm. these people while they're still trying to figure it out. And in this case, hilariously, 
they've still got to get through this play and through the rest yeah. of the evening. <laughs> exactly. With the, with the president of the college screaming that he's a criminal. Absolutely love it. Um, why do you think Donald Antrim chose A Midsummer Night's Dream? I think that he um, intuitively understood that there's a, a relationship between nature and nurture between reality and the imagination in that play full of fairies and Mm -hmm. starry nights and it's a very perfumed play you know in a sense it's 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 utterly fabulistic i mean this more than i think any other than than perhaps the tempest or the winter's tale it's a wonderful feel of fictionality being not only a means within the piece but also a subject yeah, And I think that that must have appealed to Antrim as he was setting out to deal with these uh, characters in fiction. Yeah. That it's a play to do outside. It's a play to do surrounded by trees. If he wanted a duck pond, it's the right <laughs> play. I do think there are uh, many duck pond opportunities in Hamlet or Slim. Um, for the yeah. mise-en-scene, yeah. this was the perfect. Though, in fact, it was simply supposed to be a pit in the ground. <laughs> a pit in the ground. It would also be interesting to hear from... Uh, uh, Antrim, whether the the play came before the story, as it were, if, if he started with that mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. or whether he discovered it. But the relationship between the play and the realities of these characters is really the core of the thing. It also offers offers Reginald the opportunity to cast himself as a teenager. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and that probably gets at what he's going through, which is he cannot grow up. Um, yes. He can't face a real relationship. He's childless. I and mean, he's smoking dope with the students. He's the dean of student life. I mean, I have to he say, can't. I mean, this guy's out there. I mean, speaking as a man not far from the age of Reginald in this story, the idea of returning to teenagehood in that way is my idea of hell. <laughs> the idea of having to do it again, except this time with, with less authenticity. Yeah, um, yeah. As an imposter. I mean... Being an imposter and being humiliated, of course, is a genuine feeling in the human experience of aging. And I think if you've got children, I've got a 19-year-old, the idea of stepping into uh, my child's world, listening to what they're listening to and smoking what they're smoking and talking, you know, saying the sentences they're saying, it would just be horrifying to me. Uh, (laughs) But the brilliant theatricality of the story is that it's easily imagined. I mean, there's no strain here. You don't look at this guy and think, plausibility stretched. I mean, this guy has something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. He's in the middle of something, and therefore he becomes a plausible kind of traveler into dangerous places, and there's nowhere more dangerous, as far as I'm concerned, than wanting to be a teenager when you're 48. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we also get a signal early on in the story that we are not in a realistic zone. He's he's already staged an all-male, all-nude <laughs> uh, taming of the shrew, um, yes. And not, been, the, and not lost his job. <laughs> not lost his job, yeah. I mean, I don't know as much perhaps as you do, Deborah, about liberal colleges in America, but this seems pretty liberal to me. Um, but even as a, a, a confection within um, a highly confected story, it's a what we call now a laugh out loud yeah. line that, yeah. of which there are so many in this story. And there's nothing sloppy anywhere here. You know, the winds that smell like rain, it's, that's the economy of the most gracious kind. You just know, as, as, as certainly as you know, in George Eliot's Mill in the Floss, that there is a, there's a rain coming mm-hmm. and it's going to be a deluge of huge proportions in the lives of these people. And that's the management of language in such a particular way that it's just a joy to be in among it. 
if it was an, an, in an anthology of very anarchic, very antique, almost surreal stories from The New Yorker, it would be quite a slim volume. It, it almost has a flavour somewhere in there of Kurt Vonnegut or Robert Coover, or, you know, that it's almost surreally yeah. um, out of yeah. control. Donald Bartholomew too. Yeah, Donald Bartholomew, yeah. except control yeah. is what there is an abundance of. Yes, in the language, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yet with the depiction, yeah. you know, it feels as if anything could happen in this field, and it pretty much does. Yeah, yeah. Um, but control is there. And there's no there's no real tension between that element of control and that lack of control in the, in Isn't the story. Isn't that weird? Because yeah. you would imagine, you know, that would be incredibly hard tension to maintain yeah. between the utterly absurd situation and these out-there characters and yet the control needed to render them, they're sort of magically finessed to the point where it's a lock-turning, almost James-like, Henry James-like, mm-hmm. the right key and the right lock-turning, mm-hmm. form and content, just just together in that moment. And I feel that the story has that from the very second it opens. Yeah. And it all comes down to Reginald's voice. Yeah. Right? Because he's an expert yeah. at framing. Yes, indeed. Framing his, you know, giving in to whatever bad impulse he has as an academic decision, as an artistic decision. He can justify anything. And that's his professional life, if you like. But interestingly, this guy who's appointed himself a director, the thing that he most lacks is direction. Yeah. (laughs) And again, unity of form and content. Antrim knows this. He delivers that. So... As you say, the minute you hear his voice and see how he's capable of manipulating reality to accommodate him, then we're off to the races then. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you know, I asked him about the the story and he said it was at the time that he wrote it, he was learning to let narrative material grow out of itself, as it were, and to establish a kind of logic and then to follow that logic to the story's end. Nothing was plotted out or outlined. Um. That's fascinating. Which is interesting. Yeah, it really because, is. Because uh, he had a built-in plot, which is the plot of Midsummer Night's yeah. Dream. That's an outline, but he did not know at the beginning of writing where this would end. I love that notion of allowing the material to, as it were, seek its oxygen, whatever metaphor you'd want to use. You've you got to let the sound come out of the instrument. Mm-hmm. You, things can be overscored in advance. And you can exclude spontaneity, anarchy, all those things that we've talked about. This is has a feel of spontaneity. Now, in the end, I'm sure the shaping and the deliberation was total. But what Antrim's talking about there is actually letting it grow somehow uh, and then seeing what it was. In the end, this felt so singular as a story. Even within Antrim's body of work, it is singular. And I love the idea that a writer can do that. It's, it's early um, in his contributions to The New Yorker, but he'd written novels before, and it is in his body of work, a strangeness. And I love the idea that a writer can just produce a strangeness like that. You know, his later stories, they still have, they still have that humour. They yeah. still have an element Always. of humour, but they do become much more serious. I mean, I feel almost guilty for laughing <laughs> when I read Donald Antrim's more recent stories, you know, which might feature a character uh, with mental illness making his way through the streets of New York, carrying a large uh, a bouquet of flowers that are scratching his 
Arms and Face. Another Manhattan. Another yeah. Manhattan, a masterpiece. And yet, tell me that's not comical. I mean, no, it's, the whole thing is completely comical. And, and you have that story. You have a, a two couples who are each cheating on each other with the other person's spouse. Yeah. Um, Which should be horrific and agonizing, and yet. <laughs> and it is. Yeah. And it is. But at the same time, you have this, you know, $600 bouquet of flowers that, <laughs> being carried down the street. I mean, that image is is permanent. Yeah. You know, and to create yeah. permanent images, you know, is, is work of a high order. And I just love the, uh, the ambiguity, the ambivalence, you know, the tolerance, if you like. And we feel it here, that here is a guy who, if we go at him, with an ambivalent understanding of human nature, that he can be, yes, a totally unacceptable criminal, but also a man with feelings. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think what Antrim has a knack for is taking psychological distress or a psychological mind state and, and manifesting it in something physical. Yes. Um, so you have that enormous bouquet of flowers, which is just a cry of despair yeah. in another Manhattan. And here you have this staged production. Um, yes. <laughs> and being able to pace that properly. There's such a large question about pace in this story, mm-hmm. but just how he parcels out the information, the emotion, the anarchy, everything. Yeah. To me, that only increases the comedy. And great comedians, great slapstick performers, they understand if you did this two seconds later, if you said this, three seconds earlier, it might not be funny. Yeah. You know, and he gets that. And he gets it in the most serious stories, ones with weighty concerns that might, you know, for those reasons, be unforgettable. Yeah. We will remember that. And equally, we might remember that strange echoing laugh Mm -hmm. that came while you were reading the story. Yeah, yeah. And here it seems that, you know, we have this kind of crescendo of insanity and absurdity (laughs) And then what do you call in? You call in this torrential tempest, um, <laughs> yes. which does kill people, which does cast a you know a less absurd light on things. At the same time, feeds into the absurdity by filling the hole with water. And, yeah. You know. yeah, it has a proper function. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, uh, these doors can swing open to the memorial and out comes this, I mean, although we only see him for a couple of quick moments, this principle of the college, mm-hmm. I mean, who would lead these mourners over the grass to watch this production, thinking it would cheer them up. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> What's he doing to these mourners? He must have had some inkling as to what's to come, but all of it fits just nicely. So that by the time they're sitting at the end of this pond and we have all the antics unfolding, we feel that it's all been earned. You know, the, the torrent that came was the right torrent at the right time. And although it's devastating and sad and brutal and horrific that people died and we were reminded of that, this comedy waiting, absolutely prepared for, and it's been cooked well deep in the stew. Not a flavour that was introduced, sprinkled on at the last minute. It's not seasoning in that way. It's cooked. Um, That's the way I feel about it as I read this. Impressed at every level. You know, entertained, certainly primarily, uh, but impressed watching a master at work. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Deborah. Donald Antrim is the author of the memoirs The Afterlife and One Friday in April, A Story of Suicide and Survival. 
as well as three novels and the story collection The Emerald Light in the Air. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 1996 and was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013. Andrew O'Hagan has published three books of nonfiction and six novels, including Be Near Me and Mayflies, which came out in 2020. He's a winner of the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the LA Times Book Prize, among others, and is the editor-at-large at the London Review of Books. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.